Good morning, everyone. Great to see you. As I, as I begin, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever been compared to an animal? Have you ever been compared to an animal? Maybe it's in the way that you eat your food. I don't know. Maybe it's in uh, just something about your appearance. Have you ever been compared to an animal? Yeah, some people have. Lots of people have. Uh, have, you, have you ever thought about yourself as an animal? Um, I know at some points there's been a kind of uh, fashion for having a kind of spirit animal that, that you associate particularly with and people from different, different uh, parts of our culture have kind of latched onto different animals and someone says, I'm the fox and I'm the eagle and I associate myself with this, these characteristics. Have you ever thought of yourself as an animal, not just in a being characterized way, but in a more kind of aspirational way as an animal you'd like to be more like? Yeah, some people have. What animal? What animal would you like to be, do you think? A monkey. A monkey. You'd like to be more like a monkey? A You'd like to be a gorilla, an even bigger monkey, yeah? I see where this is going. Uh, is there any other, anyone else want to share what animal they would like to be known as aspirationally? Yes, Jeff? A dugong. <laughs> Yeah, the, uh, they also known as the sea cow. Is it? <laughs> Anyone else want to share? Owen. Yes. Yes. Okay. Seeing that pilot's eye view of eagles uh, leads you to. Want to want to have their craft of flying? Yes, more naturally, more gracefully, yeah, than our man-made planes are able to. Um, well, I want to encourage you today by describing you all as an animal that you can aspire to. Uh, no one has picked it, surprisingly, uh, because that animal is the camel. Uh, as we read James today, our final section of James, he gives us more practical advice, helpfully, giving us some more practical tips of what it means to live as Christians in this world. And I want to summarize them all as being more camel-like, camel Christians. Now, where am I going with this? Well, the main, the main heading that his, his advice is coming under is perseverance, which is what camels are known for, aren't they? Camels are known for plodding along one step at a time and going great distances step by step without having to stop for pit stops, get some more water all along the way. They're known for being able to travel across deserts. They don't go for the quick sprints and then just need to sit down for a rest. No, they go slowly and steadily and they go and go and go. They persevere. And that's what James is calling us to do in the last section that we're going to read today. If you want to turn in your Bibles to James chapter 5, we're going to start reading from verse 7 to the end of the chapter. 
James calls for his readers to persevere. He says, be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crops, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. And above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no. Otherwise, you'll be condemned. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. There's a lot in this section. And as I said, I've summed it up under the heading of where James starts, perseverance. And we're going to look at it in four particular parts, uh, beginning with the first section, persevere with patience. Do you notice how many times he mentions patience there in those first couple of verses? Four times. Four times he mentions be patient. Uh, in verse 7, he says, be patient then, brothers and sisters. Again, later in verse 7, he talks about the farmer waiting patiently for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient, he says in verse 8. And then again, he speaks in verse 10 of the example of the prophets who were patient in the face of suffering. James wants his readers to be in it for the long haul. Not a quick flash in the pan, over and done with. He wants them to stick it out, to stand firm patiently throughout good times and bad times. There's going to be times when things will be easier. There's going to be times when it's going to be harder. Particularly when it's difficult, they need to be patient through times of suffering. And they need to do this by keeping their eyes 
on the future, that firm, fixed outcome? Where is the Christian life headed? Well, it's headed towards not an act, not a thing that happens so much as a person, isn't it? Do you notice that's where James directs their attention? He says, be patient because the Lord is coming. The Lord's coming is near. The judge is standing at the door. Be patient, brothers and sisters, because we know that end is fixed. Jesus will return. He'll come soon. And what is he like? Well, James sums it up at the end of verse 11. He says, the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. This is our God who has called us to be his. The God who is compassionate and merciful. This is who is coming to get us. The Lord of compassion and mercy. The Lord who knows about our hardships, who cares about what we're going through. And the Lord who has given his own life, demonstrating his care for us, demonstrating his commitment to show us mercy, to not count our sins against us. He's gone to the cross. He persevered even to that point, to the point of death. And he's coming back. We know we're secure in him. So we need to patiently endure the ups and downs of life. And as we do this, notice James gives us a particular piece of advice. And, he, and as we go through these four points, there's, there's particular parts of advice and they all happen to be connected to words and how we use our words. As we persevere with patience, James warns us in verse 9, don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you'll be judged. And isn't that such a temptation as life wears against us, particularly in the down times of life when things are frustrating, it's so easy to just take out our frustration on one another, isn't it? To grumble against someone else. They've let us down. They haven't lived up to our expectations. They haven't prioritised things in the way that we wanted them to prioritise things. They've been careless in their words. They haven't agreed with me when everyone should agree with me. It's, it's so easy to find things to grumble at with other people. It's hard to follow the Lord's example of being compassionate and merciful, isn't it? But James warns us as we patiently go about our lives waiting for Jesus to return, to beware of the temptation to grumble. The judge is standing at the door. Jesus comes. And he comes 
to collect us as his forgiven people, the redeemed, he has purchased by his blood. But we should still remember he's the, the Lord who doesn't tolerate sin. He's the Lord who died for you, but he's also the Lord who died for those brothers and sisters that you're grumbling against. He is, if he has shown the mercy, shouldn't you be quick to be patient with them also? Well, this is our, our, first, our first point. We need to persevere with patience. And in some sense, this is the, the overall instruction to persevere as we wait for Jesus to come, to be patient. Uh, he, oh, there you go. There's a kind of camel with a grumbly face. They're known for their uh, tenderness to be grumpy, aren't they? It's a temptation for us. Uh, as James moves on, though, we need to persevere in, in verse 12 with plain truth. James warns us against taking oaths, uh, repeating the very words that Jesus himself used. Uh, we don't need to take oaths, simply yet let your yes be yes and your no be no. Otherwise, you'll be condemned, James says. Now, Jesus says it, and our plain word should speak for itself, shouldn't it? We should be trusted by what we say without having to invoke oaths against ourselves, without having to tie ourselves up and commit ourselves over to certain judgments or outcomes if we should not be telling the truth. Because as Christian people, we're people of truth. We're people who follow the Lord who is the way, the truth, and the life. We ought to be known for our truth-telling. We ought to be known for being reliable and trustworthy in all that we say. But there's an additional sense in which I think James reiterates we shouldn't tell oaths. And that's building on what we heard last week at the end of chapter 4, in which James called the people to be humble because ultimately the future is not in our hands. He calls them not to make arrogant plans saying you're going to do this and you're going to do that. That's a, there's a similarity to creating oaths. I'm committing myself to this and I'm committing myself to this and I'm, and I'm calling down heaven and earth, things over which I have no power, to be my witnesses. Well, in humility, we ought to recognize that we are not, we're not in control of all things. And there's a sense in which all our commitments ought to be provisional on the Lord's will, as Matt reminded us, helpfully, last week. And this should come in the way we speak. We should be able to give our yes and no faithfully and truthfully. But even that would come with the humility of knowing that ultimately God's in control and the outcome will be determined by Him. So friends, speak truthfully persevere with plain truth build a habit the practice the reputation of speaking the truth humbly now this was the biggest stretch in terms of camels but camels are hard to turn aren't they they're not known for their nimble changing of direction uh, 
they, they go and they continue to go and keep going in a straight line. And that's kind of like how we should be telling the truth, continuing on in that trajectory, the trajectory of honesty, committed to it, not deviating here and there, trying to be crafty and tricky, slowly and steadily plodding on in the truth. Well, after this quick warning about oaths, James continues to instruct the people and his next instruction is to persevere with prayer. And this is what takes up most of the time and this is the trickiest part of the passage and one of the trickiest parts of James as a whole. Uh, So we're going to spend the most time here. Uh, But he starts with a general general call. Is any among you in trouble? What should you do? Pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Notice these two, there's, there's in trouble. That's a description of the circumstances you're in, isn't it? And then is anyone happy? That's not a description of good circumstances. That's a description of the positive outlook someone has on their circumstances. And it's possible that they could both go together, isn't it? You could have that positive attitude in the midst of troubled circumstances. It's possible to do both these things, that you could be praying and committing your troubled circumstances to God and also be praising him. And that's part of the reality of the Christian life as we persevere through the ups and downs. We sing songs amidst our trouble. Anyway, James calls the readers to be people of prayer. And this should be a natural response to our circumstances, to our attitudes. We should be pouring out in words, again with words, to God. Uh, Later, towards the end of the section on prayer, he talks about us doing this with each other, confess your sins to each other, pray for each other. And then he reminds them, the prayer of the righteous person is powerful and effective. Why is prayer so important? Because prayer achieves things. Prayer works. Prayer isn't just a, it's not just kind of like a verbal diary entry, like maybe you do just to, it's cathartic, it gets out the things you've been thinking about and you get them out of your system and you think, oh, well, God's listened to it, I feel better. Prayer is not just a kind of wishful thinking, well, here's my 101 things on my Santa Claus list, I'll present them to God. No, prayer is powerful and effective, James says. Prayer achieves things. Why does it, why does it achieve things? Why is it powerful and effective? Well, it's because the God we pray to is a God of compassion and mercy who hears us. He's committed to listen. He's caring about our lives, what happens, what's on our hearts. And he is powerful to bring about whatever answer to prayer we're asking for. He's powerful to do more than we ask or imagine, as Paul writes. And he can do it through many natural ways, through, he can achieve our ends through 
just bringing about circumstances through people, through times changing, through just the revolving of the universe. But he can also act supernaturally. He can intervene and answer our prayers in miraculous ways. He gives, uh, James gives the example of Elijah, who, notice, was a human being even as we are. Elijah wasn't a supernatural creature. Just a normal, normal person. But he prayed and his prayer was answered. He prayed the rain would stop and it stopped. He prayed after three and a half years that it would rain again and it did. And God used his prayer. He answered his prayer. And reality, the course of history, reflects Elijah's prayer. Now, sometimes it's easy for us to think about prayer in a way that thinks about it as little. We don't regard it often as we should. We, we undervalue prayer. We take the privilege of prayer for granted. We can be lazy with prayer. We can decide to just put it off because there's other more productive things I could be doing with my time. We get so busy. There's so many things to do. How can I pray? How can I have time to stop? But that's not reflecting the reality of prayer, is it? That's not honoring the privilege that God has given us in prayer. The prayer of the righteous person is powerful and effective. And the righteous person isn't the kind of like top tier of Christians. The righteous person is the person who's been made right in God's sight by the blood of Jesus. That's those people who have repented and trusted in him. The prayer of God's children is powerful and effective. You could paraphrase it. The prayer of the church is powerful and effective. Why don't we act like it? Why don't we pray like it? You might ask, how is prayer related to camels? Let me, let me read you this description from one of the historians of the early church. And he's, talk, he's talking about uh, one of the leaders here, one of the church leaders. It says, he frequently entered the temple alone and was frequently found situated upon his knees, asking forgiveness for the people so that his knees became hard after the manner of a camel on account of always bending down upon a knee while worshipping God and asking forgiveness for the people. So writes Eusebius in his Ecclesiastical History. Who is this camel knees that Eusebius is writing about? It's James the writer of this letter. 
When James instructs his readers to be people of prayer, he does it as one who walks the walk or who kneels the kneel, as the case may be, to the point where he gets the nickname Camel Knees. I don't know what your knees look like. Trust that none of them look quite like that. Mine don't, definitely don't look like that. But wouldn't that be, wouldn't that be a wonderful nickname to deserve? Wouldn't it be wonderful if you were known as someone who was so faithful in prayer that that was, that was part of your reputation? known for being on your knees, whether physically or metaphorically, kneeling before the Lord and presenting requests to Him. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we were known as a church of people who prayed? Friends, I call on you to be more like camels, be people of prayer because it works. It's powerful and effective because our God is a God who cares and a God who works. Now at this point, we're going to just dig back into some of the specifics here uh, that James mentions because he particularly talks about praying for the sick. Verse 14, is anyone among you sick? Then he gives them some particular instructions about how prayer should work in this circumstance. He says, is anyone sick? What should they do? Step one, call the elders of the church. Uh, I think this is, it's not because the elders particularly had the gift of healing um, that Paul talks about elsewhere in the New Testament. I think it's because the elders had a particular responsibility to look after the people of the church. And they were also representative of the church, weren't they? That the leaders have this special role. It's like the whole church is coming around and caring for the person at this time, praying for them. So the first thing, the person who's sick calls for the elders. And notice this isn't, it's, it's probably something that's done in kind of more serious circumstances. It's not just every time you take a COVID test. Uh, it seems to be the more significant cases of illness where, in fact, the person can't go to the elders. The elders have to come to the person who's sick. They're not mobile at this stage. And then what should happen? The elders of the church uh, come and pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, what is going on here uh, with the oil? We only get one other mention in the whole Bible of oil being used uh, in the case of healing in this sense. And that's in Mark uh, 6.13. They, the 12, drove out many demons and anointed with oil many people who were ill and healed them. Now, we're not 
given any more explanation here in this verse as we, as we are in James. So what is the deal with the oil? Well, what else happens with oil in the Bible? Oil is used in, it's used medicinally when the Good Samaritan, in the story of the Good Samaritan, uh, when the, the Samaritan finally comes and tends to the man's wounds, he uses oil as a, as a, as a balm for his wounds. Is that what's going on here? Is oil being used, James, suggesting the elders put oil on the sick because it has some pharmaceutical benefit? I don't think so because it's not just in the case of a wound uh, and there's, it's a blanket treatment for everything. I don't think it's actually targeting specific healing powers of oil. Uh, how else? Is it perhaps used in the way that oil is used in the Old Testament? to set apart people for particular roles. Oil was used, it was poured on David to symbolise that he would be the king. It was poured on the sons of Aaron to symbolise they were being set apart to serve in the tabernacle as priests. Oil had this symbolic role of setting people apart. Some people have argued that in James here, it's talking about people being set apart for life, but it's a bit it's a bit of guesswork in that sense because it doesn't explain that explicitly, does it? Is it having a kind of sacramental role? As has been taken in the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, they have the sacrament of extreme unction. Uh, or commonly known as the last rites, uh, where uh, at the last moment before death, oil is anointed on someone and, they believe, has the power of covering over through that sacrament any sins that have been left outstanding to ensure that the person is in the right state of grace before they die. Uh, I don't think that's what's going on here because James is not talking about using oil to prepare someone for death. He's actually using as a means of preparing them for more life, for healing. And I don't think it's a sacrament, particularly because the sacraments, as we understand them, are the practices that connect us to particular things that Jesus has done to his death and resurrection and our sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And while Jesus was anointed, he was anointed just before his death and it's not really connected with healing of sick in, a, in any kind of direct sense that makes, makes sense of this passage. What else could we go? Well, there's one other sense that oil is used in the Bible that I think makes best, best sense of what's going on here. And it's in the, the Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus tells the people, or his disciples particularly, don't fast like the hypocrites who put on sad faces and they go about like they're in the worst suffering ever just to get attention so everyone knows they're, they're, they're fasting. But he says, no, when you fast, what do you do? Put oil on your head. And wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others you are fasting, 
belonging to God, he goes on. Uh, but notice the use of oil. Oil is put on as a sense of well-being. It was used, I don't want to kind of downplay it, but it was used almost as a cosmetic sense. It's almost like the hair gel of the ancient world to look healthy, to look well, to be looking at your best. Some people use beard oil, now I think. Uh, that's become popular. Uh, maybe that's similar. Uh, but I think this is what Jesus is saying here. When you fast, don't try and look, look like things are bad, look like things are normal or good. Oil is used as a symbol of health and vitality. And I think it's in this vein that the symbol of the elders anointing the sick with oil makes best sense. The elders put oil on the person who is sick as a symbol of health and vitality. Not that the oil itself conveys any any kind of magical healing or supernatural healing because we're clearly told that verse 15, the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. Not, Not the oil, the prayer. God answers the prayer that makes people well. But they do it with this tangible symbol of health. Notice that this prayer is done in faith. This is important. It's done dependent on grace. It's It's an expression of trust in God's healing power. People have made much of this at different times and said, if the person hasn't been healed, does that mean their faith is lacking? Their faith isn't strong enough. Well, it's hard to measure faith in that way because faith is a dependence. Were you not dependent enough? That's it's not a thing that can be measured in terms of greatness. It's a prayer of trusting. It's not a power to wield. It's not a ritual to invoke as you say the certain words and... X plus Y equals the outcome of Z. Um, It's a prayer that's done trusting in God's goodness, in his provision, in his power to heal, in his compassion and mercy for those who are suffering. Notice that it's also done in connection with confession. Verse 16 uh, therefore, oh, sorry, verse, the end of verse 15, if they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another. Pray for each other so you may be healed. In the ancient world and in ancient Israel, the connection between prosperity and being right with God was, was thought to go strongly together. If life was good, that was a sign that you were right with God. If you were sick or suffering, things weren't good, you weren't prospering, the, one of the immediate assumptions was you'd done something wrong. Uh, that was the whole book of Job where his helpful friends keep reminding her of this well-known fact. You must have done something wrong, Job. What is it? But the outcome of that is... Job is upheld at the end of someone who's not done something that has brought the suffering on him. 
when we look carefully at the Bible, we find that this direct link between doing wrong and suffering is not, it's not so simple. Yes, suffering's in the world because of sin, because Adam and Eve, there's death and there's the breakdown of our bodies and sickness and all that in a, in a big general sense. But it's not always a direct link. You know, here, uh, Jesus encounters a man who was born blind and he says, neither this man nor his parents sin. But this, his blindness, happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. See, he's saying blindness, not connected to sin. It doesn't always go that way. However, God can use the difficult things we go through, including sickness, as a means of disciplining us, as a means of humbling us, as a means of getting us to engage with our failings, to repent. Uh, as, as is the case of the Corinthian church, in 1 Corinthians 11, you may want to read that later, uh, where they were getting sick and some of them had even died because of their abuse of the Lord's Supper. But this happened as a discipline, it says, because God wants them to wake up to themselves. That's why James here mentions confession, that when we're sick, it, it is, should be a prompt to go, are there things that I need to confess? Could God be using this to humble me? It's not necessarily connected, but it's, it's helpful for us to take the prompt to be people who are quick to repent, not proudly standing, expecting we don't need to. We're nearly there. One more thing we need to hear about this is James seems to be on the face of it, saying that if you're sick, if you call the elders, if they anoint you with oil and pray over you in the prayer of faith, then your healing is guaranteed. People, Some people have read that and, and thought, this is the promise that we will always be healed. As Christians, when we're faithfully doing this, that we can always expect healing. God doesn't mean for us to endure sickness. But we need to know this is not the case. For one, all believers die. For 2,000 years, that's been happening. Even within the Bible, uh, the New Testament times, believers were dying. And believers were living with sickness that wasn't being healed. Paul uh, had some type of sickness going on that he called his thorn in his side and he pleaded with God three times to take it away and God said, no, my grace is sufficient for you to endure that. Uh, in 1, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 20, uh, Paul talks about leaving one of his fellow workers, Trophimus, behind because he was ill. Why didn't Paul, as an elder, didn't he anoint him and pray the prayer of faith and heal him? Well, That wasn't the general expectation. That wasn't the general practice. And the last thing I think we know why this is the case is because James has to write to these people 
and remind them to persevere at praying. He has to remind them that prayer is effective and powerful. If this was happening to everyone who was sick, left, right and centre, don't you think they would be pretty aware of it? That God heals us when we're, when we're sick. That would, be, that would get pretty well known. I think we, people would talk about it. If that was our church, if everyone here, whenever they got sick, we prayed for them and they got well, word would spread. We'd have a current affair down here knocking at the door. But James has to remind them that this is the case, that prayer is something valuable. He reminds them that it is effective and powerful. No, in line with what he has already said in the letter, that everything we do is contingent on the Lord's will. And we pray for people who are sick, knowing that God is able to, to heal. We pray for them and we ask for healing, even ask for miraculous healing. But we do so trusting that the outcome will be according to his will. Friends, persevere in prayer. Cultivate your camel knees, knowing that prayer is powerful and effective. God hears and answers. Pray with perseverance. Call on the elders to pray over you, to pray with you. Confess your sins as you examine yourself. Pray and confess to each other. Persevere in prayer. The very last thing James says in this book, in this letter, is he reminds the people to persevere with those who don't. That is, with those who don't persevere in the Christian faith. If any one of you should wander from the truth, someone should bring them back. We have to be prepared to speak, to rebuke to remind, to refresh each other's memories because we should be in it together. We don't give up on people. We persevere with them. Even if they are going through a hard time, questioning where they stand. Even if they are at the moment acting like they don't believe it. We shouldn't just cast them off forever and say, well, that's the end of the road. James calls us to be people who persevere with them. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Because as we are persevering patiently, truthfully, and prayerfully, we do it in light of that great day of Jesus' return where his people will be saved, will be raised up, from death. And though our sins are many, a great multitude, we know they are covered over by the blood of Jesus. That's, that's our hope, isn't it? That's our only hope for those who are 
not walking in faith at the moment. And so we persevere seeking to turn them from the error of their ways. That's why camels are all strapped together, isn't it? In a camel train. Even if one of them tries to go off track, the power of all the others together helps keep them on. We can be like that together as a church. The camel train. Friends, I hope you hear the word of James today. Persevere. Embrace your inner camel. Stick at it. As we have looked in the mirror of God's word today and over the past weeks through the letter of James, hear again that that reminder. Don't deceive yourselves. Don't just read it. Don't just hear it. And then walk away thinking that, was, that sounded nice. Do what it says. Let me pray. Great God, thank you for the word that you speak to us in James. Please, please protect us from having hard hearts, from deceiving ourselves. Please help us to be people of action people whose faith spills out into deeds, and particularly help us to be people who persevere with patience, with truth, with prayer, and with even those who aren't persevering. Please, please strengthen us for the journey of Christian faith as we look forward to the day when Christ returns. We pray this in his powerful name. Amen.